be looking at Psalm 71 in our Bible study. So we'll start with our summary of Psalm 71. Psalm 71 expresses hope in the Lord from birth to the grave. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 71 expresses hope in the Lord from birth to to the grave. A simple outline for this psalm would be in two parts, pretty much in half. Verses 1 to 13, prayer for deliverance. Verses 14 to 24, praise for deliverance. So we'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 13, prayer for deliverance. Verses 14 to 24, praise for deliverance. Okay, so we'll go to our observations of Psalm 71. So Psalm 71 has no superscription, so there is no author that is indicated. Um, This psalm is the last psalm of the David psalm group in book two. Uh, It has strong connections with the David psalms as well as it's a part of this final subgroup, Psalm 69 to 71, that finishes off this collection. And it follows right after Psalm 70, which is um, ascribed to David. Um, So we certainly have good reasons to believe that David was the author of this psalm, uh, but that has just not been Uh, preserved for us um, historically. So um, there's no certain occasion in the text. There's no heading, obviously, and there's no musical direction either. Psalm 71, I would categorize as a lament psalm. It's it's a little different um, from other laments as far as the structure goes, even, even though We see all of those conventions of a lament present here in Psalm 71. So there's direct address prayer to God for deliverance. There's a crisis complaint. There's expression of confidence and praise. There's commitment to praise. Um, But it doesn't flow quite um, that neatly. It's it's a little uh, freer in its structure. We may talk about that in just a, a little bit. The psalm also contains many praise elements. In fact, quite a number as you would go through it. You see catalog of of God's praiseworthy acts. And so there's um, a a strong presence of praise elements in this psalm. Uh, It also contains some imprecations, these prayers for judgment. Um, Also has um, some minor wisdom element, um, speaking of teaching and, and being being trained from a youth and also a reversal judgment that we see by the end where 
um, what the what the enemies have plotted for David um, will come back on them. They will suffer um, that fate. So Psalm 71, as I said a few moments ago, is a part of this final subgroup at the end of this David group. So the David group of Psalms in book two is Psalms 51 to 71. And of course, book two ends with Psalm 72, a Psalm of Solomon. Um, and within this David group, we've looked at some subgroups. And here we have a final subgroup, Psalm 69 to 71. And so between those three Psalms, there's a number of connections in words and phrases and um, imagery and, and themes and things that are used. So we see a, an emphasis on themes of suffering, uh, enemies that are, that are hunting and seeking to kill. Uh, there's an urgency of prayer that comes across in these Psalms. Um, there's uh, mentions of shame and confusion, both as wanting to be, the psalmist wanting to be delivered from those and the enemies being brought to those um, in the end in judgment. So the psalm obviously has strong connections then to those preceding psalms. It does have some other connections. Um, uh, for instance, the first three verses are nearly identical with the first three verses of Psalm 31. Um, so that's, that's a connection. Uh, it also has some connections with Psalm 22. Um, so you have the mention of the mother's womb, uh, like in Psalm 22.10, that's in verse 6 here. Uh, you have this mention of forsaking or of abandonment in verse 12 uh, that comes out in Psalm 22, verses 1 to 19 as well, and a couple of other minor connections with Psalm 22. So there are some, um, some connections outside of this uh, immediate group as well. All right, so for the poetic features of Psalm 71, um, when you look at the structure of the psalm, it's very loose and free. Um, in fact, it's, um, it's to that extent that there's a number of scholars that, that, that would say, well, this, you know, this can't you know, be a, a coherent psalm. This has to just sort of be pieced together from other places. And, and there are a number of similar um, phrases and statements that can be found in other places of the Psalms, but that's that's not unusual um, across the Psalms. What what you learn as you go through the Psalms is that there does seem to be some stock imagery and some stock phrases and things that are used throughout the Psalms, and then and then you'll start noticing them also in other places in Scripture um, that are used as well. So the structure is is quite quite loose and free. It's, it's um, kind of hard to pin down, but the, it, the, one of the poetic features of the structure is that there's these alternations. So there's um, almost every petition, almost every prayer for help or for deliverance is going to be followed by praise. And then we also see some alternating between um, times of youth and times of old age in the psalm. So that seems to be sort of the structural pattern of the psalm. Um, the psalm does use a motif of time that runs throughout this psalm. So we see references to youth um, in like verses 5 and 6 and 17. We see references to old age, verses um, 9 and 18. And then we see references to the continuance of time. Some, 
Sometimes it's it's all day long or or something of that nature. And that runs uh, pretty steadily throughout verses 3 and 6, 8, 14, 15, 17, and 24. So definitely the psalm uses a motif of time, which is, um, and these things also uh, help us to see that this is indeed a whole psalm as it, as it was written. It just did not, didn't use a typical structuring that we find in the psalms. Um, the psalm does use some imagery. We got birth imagery in verse number six. Uh, we've got imagery of death, grave, and resurrection in verse number twenty. Um, when you talk, when he's talking about the enemies, he's using a number of terms: um, seeking of his life and laying in wait. And so you have some of that imagery that could be um, like that of a hunter pursuing a prey, or it could be uh, a military type imagery where you have. Um, maybe like some sort of covert operation that's that's trying to take out um, a target. Um, you also have you have quite a number of of the bodily references of hand and mouth and and lips and and things like that as well. All right, so let's walk through this psalm. We've got twenty four verses, so it's a little bit on the longer side of the psalms, but we'll go ahead and read through this. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. Deliver me in thy righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline thine ear unto me and save me. Be thou my strong habitation, whereunto I may continually resort. Thou hast given commandment to save me, for thou art my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For thou art my hope, O Lord God, thou art my trust from my youth. By thee have I been holden up from the womb. Thou art he that took me out of my mother's bowels. My praise shall be continually of thee. I am as a wonder unto many, but thou art my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. Cast me not off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength faileth. For mine enemies speak against me, and they that lay wait for my soul take counsel together, saying, God hath forsaken him, persecute and take him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste for my help. Let them be confounded and consumed that are adversaries to my soul. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor that seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will yet praise thee more and more. My mouth shall show, shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed the thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to everyone that is to come. Thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who has done great things, O God? Who is like unto thee? Thou which hast showed me great and sore troubles shalt quicken me again, and shalt bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Thou shalt increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. I will also praise thee with a psaltery. Even thy truth, O my God, unto thee will I sing with the harp. O thou Holy One of Israel, 
My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee and my soul which thou hast redeemed. My tongue also shall talk of thy righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought unto shame that seek my hurt. All right, so verses 1 to 3 give us the opening petition of this psalm. So verse 1 opens with uh, strong covenantal prayer terms, and we have encountered this um, in the psalms. Uh, We see this word for trust that is used here. The first time it occurs is in Psalm 2 and verse number 12, and it's a word that means um, refuge, to to take refuge um, in God. And it is used in various psalms, and even more recently we've seen it used, and again with these strong covenantal associations like in Psalm 57, 1, Psalm 61, verse 4, uh, Psalm 64, and verse number 10. We also have in this psalm this prayer for making haste. We have an echo of the prayer in Psalm 69, verse number 6. We also have mention of confusion, and this means um, being, uh, being shamed. Now, the, the first mention that we have... Um, of several in this psalm of God's righteousness occurs here in verse 2. So deliver me in in thy righteousness. And so that the righteousness of God is something that is recurs throughout this psalm. And his particularly his righteousness as the foundation of his acts. So it, it means the word itself means justice or being right in his actions, as though when God acts, whether it's in the deliverance of his people or it's the judgment of his enemies, that God is right and just in acting, in doing what he is doing. Um, and so this, uh, the psalmist here asked to be heard, um, to bend down the ear to him. We've seen this elsewhere, and this typically um, indicates that this is the prayer and the request of a righteous Sufferer. In other words, this is someone who is just in his cause and his complaint and his expectation of God to ask for his deliverance. So, uh, an example of that is in Psalm 17 and verse number six. But this prayer to be heard, again, typically indicates the prayer of a righteous sufferer. Um, in verse three, we see various terms that are associated to strength, to height, to defense, to safety. Um, this is an appeal to God to be that fortress, to be that fortification for those who have trusted in him. And interestingly, here in in verse number three, he mentions that God has given a commandment to save him. So there's a a confidence and there's a hope here because God has issued a command that he be rescued. Now, this is used in reference to God's keeping his covenant promises uh, and affecting deliverance for those, uh, his saints uh, who have trusted in him and for judgment on his enemies. So we've seen this term being used this way in Psalm 7 and verse number 6, uh, Psalm 33 and verse 9, Psalm 42 and verse 8, Psalm 44 and verse 4, and more recently, Psalm 68 and verse number 28. So as we move to verses 4 to 8, we now um, see an expression of hope and praise coming out in this psalm. So 
verse 4 begins with a petition for deliverance from enemies. And here we have the enemies mentioned in different terms. So there's three different terms that are used to describe those that are seeking his hurt, seeking to destroy him. They're wicked, they're unrighteous, and they are cruel. All right, so the word for wicked um, means those that are opposing God. So it's the idea of being lawless. Um, The word for unrighteous would describe one who is unjust in his dealings. So so the psalmist is being persecuted, he's, he's suffering, and he's suffering unfairly, he's suffering unjustly um, at the hands of these wicked and cruel men. And now the word for cruel man here is a word that actually refers literally to the taste of something as being bitter or sour. And it's used in a sort of a figurative sense when speaking of a person, to speak of a person of cruelty or hardness or harshness. Verse number five, we have this word for hope, um, and that word is literally a word for a cord or a rope or something. Um, Figuratively, it is expressing a hope or an expectation. We've seen it used that way in Psalm 9 and verse 18, Psalm 62 and verse 5. In in a way, the psalmist is saying that God is his lifeline. That That is his expectation of hope. And we have here in verse 5 the first reference to time, that again, it's a recurring, this motif that goes throughout this psalm, um, it refers to his youth, and that would be his childhood or his early life. He states that he has been held up uh, in verse 6, and the word here indicates actually to be propped up or to be, you know, to lean on. So he's being supported or held up um, by God from the womb, he says in verse number six. So this is the support, this term is support that sustains those who trust in God. I think sometimes it has been translated as sustain, um, this same term. So uh, we've seen it uh, a couple of times, these David Psalms, Psalm 51 and verse number 12, um, Psalm 54 and verse number four. We also have here in verse six, this birth imagery. So the the picture is God as a midwife who has safely taken David uh, or the psalmist here rather from his mother's womb, uh, which again is uh, very similar to the imagery um, and the terms used in Psalm 22 and verse number 10. So what he is saying here is that he's recognizing God's care of him even before he was born. And so God's care of him, even before he was born, causes him to anticipate perpetual praise. In other words, he will always be praising God. God has sustained him and taken him from his mother's womb. In other words, God has expressed um, love and, and care and loyalty to him even from before the time he was born. So obviously then that ensures that he is going to continue to praise God forevermore. Verse 7, um, it, it, he's, he says that he is describes himself as a wonder unto many. And the word for wonder means a miracle or a sign. And it's one of those kind of words that can be either positive or negative. Um, so in, in a positive sense, 
he could be a sign of good that is to come. Uh, in other words, his life circumstances and his life situation um, could be a sign, a positive sign to others of the blessings of God. Or it could be negative. Negative would be that his life circumstances and situations would be seen as a sign of judgment to come. Um, so, you know, the suffering that he's undergoing and so on will be seen that way. So it's not entirely clear just from this verse alone whether the positive sense or the negative sense is what is intended. I take it to be the negative sense. And the reason why is because as you keep on reading in this psalm, in just a few verses, he's going to begin to describe the scorn and mockery that is heaped on him by his enemies. And that primarily, that primary mockery is essentially saying, look at him. God has forsaken him. God has abandoned. There's none to deliver him. So I take that to mean then he says, he's saying here as a part of his suffering that he has become something of a sign of judgment to many. In other words, they have interpreted his life as being out of favor with God, being under um, God's displeasure. But regardless of the misinterpretation of his life, he says, and that's where we see the contrast supplied here at the, the second part of the verse, but thou art my strong refuge. God is his secure shelter. No matter what his enemies may think, no matter what they may perceive to be true based on his life and circumstances. In verse number eight, then we see his mouth being directed, filled with praise. So his mouth has been pouring out this complaint to God, but his mouth will be filled with praise. In other words, he's anticipating deliverance and he has confidence in it. As we move to the next part, verses 9 to 13, this is where we're going to first encounter the imprecations. He's going to get more to this crisis complaint with his enemies. But he begins with this petition in verse number 9 that God would not cast him off in the time of old age. Um, So now he's looking forward to the time of old age. So we went from youth. Now he's anticipating this time of old age. Some have taken this to mean that he is in that condition, a a place of old age. Um, That doesn't seem clear to me in the psalm. It seems more rather that he is looking to that. Maybe he has gotten closer to that. He's no longer a youth um, of early early childhood, but he's looking to that time and, and he's anticipating it. So maybe he's at least close to there or starting to experience some of that. But either way, he's looking forward to this time of old age. So he's anticipating the ravages of time and age weakening him in the face of his enemies and his troubles. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that just being young and sometimes having that youthful health and strength and resilience it helps us sometimes weather some of the storms um, and things that, that come to us in life. And as, as we grow older and so our, our health begins to decline, at least in the sense of, of just we're just not as strong as we used to be. We're just not as resilient as we used to be. Um, we're, we're tired or we're weaker, all of these kind of things. So he anticipates these weakening him in the face of his enemies and his trouble. And so he's pressing this plea to God, don't cast me off 
in, in, in such a time. In other words, when, when I am weak and when I am weary and, and when I am unable, um, don't cast me off. Now, this word for cast is the same word that's used in Psalm 22 and verse number 10. Um, and it ref- there he was referring to being cast on God. Um, here it's more of a being cast away or thrown aside as in discarded. And that's the way that actually uh, we saw it used there in Psalm 51 and verse number 11. Forsaken, the word that he used as not, not being forsaken is also the same word used in Psalm 22 and verse number 1. It's also the same word used in Psalm 16 and verse number 10 um, when speaking of that God would not forsake his Holy One in the grave, would not allow him to see corruption. That's an interesting connection there. Um, so as we proceed, he begins to speak then of enemies in verse number 10. Um, they're speaking against him. They're conspiring against him, um, which is which is something that ties in with some of the themes of the earlier David Psalms that we saw in book number two. Um, they're waiting for his soul. And of course, we know that that means his life, that they're seeking to kill him. That's what they are trying to do. Verse 11, the enemies interpret his suffering as a sign of God's disfavor and abandonment of him. In other words, it's it's time, you know, he's he's wounded, he's weak, God has forsaken him, he's he has no help, he has no protection. It's time to to pile on, it's time to take him. Um, verse 12 then gives us an echo of that prayer in Psalm 22, verses 1 and, and verse 19. Um, and it also echoes the desperation. So there's an urging here of God to be quick to come soon, to, to act quickly, um, much like we saw in Psalm 70 and verse number 1. And verse 13 then gives us those imprecations, those prayers for judgment. And he's echoing the, the imprecations of Psalm 69, verses 22 to 28. And again, just as, as we've seen in these previous Psalms, this prayer for them, for their shame and for their reproach, indicates that this is a prayer for vindication, for um, the sufferer to be shown to be righteous for the enemies to be shown to be unrighteous. Uh, verses 14 to 19 give us that expression of confidence um, that we typically expect to see in a lament. Um, verse 14 contrasts his commitment to praise God with the treacheries of his enemies. Their counsels are all talks of destruction and of violence. Um, but he will hope and praise God. Uh, verse 15 gives us another one of those time indicators. Uh, he's going to show forth God's righteousness and his salvation all the day. Um, the, the reason um, he's going to praise continually um, is, is seen here. It's, it's expressed in an odd way um, when he talks about that I know not the numbers thereof. And um, the most obvious um, way to look at that would be that these are the numbers of God's righteous acts. These are the numbers of God's saving acts, that they're, they are so numerous that he's going to be praising God all day because he can't, can't exhaust it or can't keep up with it. Um, verse 16 gives us a repetition of God's righteousness being praised. Uh, verse 17 refers to being taught from his youth by God, um, and God teaches those this, uh, with, that are... Uh, in covenant with him, he teaches his ways, the same term used in Psalm 25, verses 4, 5, and 9 there. Verse 18 renews the petition 
not to be forsaken when he is old, um, preserved to show God's strength to those that come after him. Verse 19 describes God's righteousness once again and here as surpassing all. There's none like him. He is greater than all. This, this idea um, is also tied into the concept of God's holiness, his being separate from all creation. There is none like him. So verses 20 to 24 give us the ending of this psalm, and here we have this commitment to praise. Verse 20, he speaks of the depths of the earth, and this is uh, a figure for the grave and for death. We've seen it uh, in places like Psalm 40 and verse 2, Psalm 63 and verse 9. Um, quicken, that is used here, means to revive, and he couples that with being brought up again. Obvious um, references to the resurrection that we have seen in Psalm 30 verse number three in Psalm 40 and verse number two. Now he speaks in verse 21 of the increase of his greatness. And that term is only otherwise used of God in the Psalms. There's two other occurrences. It's Psalm 145 verses three and six, where God's greatness is referred to. He's going to be surrounded, he says, by comfort or by consolation. So this is, a, this is another um, sort of a mirror image. It's a reversal picture. So he has been surrounded by his enemies, and he's going to be surrounded by the comfort and consolation of God. Uh, verse 22 speaks of praise, singing with musical instruments. Um, the word for truth, emet, uh, is uh, certainty, um, faithfulness. It, it generally refers to the reliability of God. There's a there's a stability, a provenness, um, and then we have this reference to the Holy One of Israel, which this is the first of only three occurrences of this um, title in Psalms. So in Psalm 78, 41, we have another one. In Psalm 89, 18, we have another one. Now, this phrase is used in just a few other places in the Old Testament, but it is mostly used in the book of Isaiah, which I think occurs over 20 times there in the book of Isaiah. That is the most common um, place that it is used. And it is a messianic title. The um, Holy One of Israel in the book of Isaiah ultimately is the one who comes to save and rescue and deliver Israel. Verse 23, uh, then the word for redeem that is used, it means to ransom, to set free by paying the ransom price. Uh, we've seen that in a number of Psalms uh, here more recently, Psalm 55 and verse 18, Psalm 69 and verse 18. Verse 24 gives us this repetition again of God's righteousness and of this continual praise. And here we have this reversal judgment. So finally, as we come to the end, uh, we get a sort of a mirror of verse number one, the way the psalm began. But then we also get um, the enemies. They are confounded. They are brought to shame that sought my hurt. And so the judgment has come back on their own heads. Okay. Move to interpretation. Psalm 71, first of all, teaches covenantal prayer. And we've talked about this um, a few different times and some different psalms that we've looked at. But what we see in this psalm in particular is that you see this repetition of God's righteousness being referred to. So on the one hand, we could say, well, you know, it, it teaches us that God is righteous, and, and that is true. But these repeated references to God's righteousness, like, verse 2, 15, 16, 19, and 24, 
It is the righteousness of his acts that is continually being referred to and being praised. And so, in, in other words, this psalm is telling us that God always does right. He is always just and right and upright and, and righteous in his acts. And he will do right in keeping his covenant promises to redeem and save those who trust in him and judge his enemies. So then we see that this prayer of lament, these petitions for help and for deliverance are founded upon God's righteousness. That's the reason that there's hope. That's the reason that there is expectation of deliverance because God has promised to redeem those who trust in him, to deliver them from all their enemies. God has promised to do that. And so God's righteousness means that he acts justly. And even though the circumstances may not look good, the circumstances for the psalmist in this psalm don't necessarily look all that encouraging, but the righteousness of God is encouraging because that means that what he's doing is right and he will do right and he will keep his promises and those that trust in him will be delivered. So again, that's this basis of covenantal prayer. Psalm 71 teaches us also the righteousness of God's judgments. So once again, we have a psalm where the psalmist looks from youth to old age. And, and it's almost as if this psalm paints a picture of a lifelong a, a life troubles that have been experienced and even to the danger of, of death. But ultimately, what is this, how does this psalm end? Well, the wicked will not prosper. That's what we were told at the very beginning of the Psalms in Psalm number one. That's what we're being told here. So even in some of the darkest times of suffering and persecution and lament when crying out to God, the wicked will not prosper and the righteous will be delivered. That's a strong message coming through in a lament like Psalm 71. Well, the Messianic hope of Psalm 71 is seen particularly through this direct appeal to the Holy One of Israel. And again, this is a Messianic title when you look at it <clears throat> in the ways that it's used in the other context where it occurs. And also, this psalm is very similar to Psalm 16 and Psalm 22. So in both of those psalms, along with this psalm, the righteous sufferer appears to be abandoned by God. His enemies take advantage and scorn and put him to death. But God doesn't leave his Holy One in the grave to suffer corruption, but brings him up again. And this results in the salvation of the psalmist and all who trust in him and in the continual praise of him for that deliverance. Okay, let's go to applications. I have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 71 helps us understand the reliability of God in the changing times and seasons around us. So as we go through life, we age, 
and we go through many troubles. In other words, we change. We change as we go through life. And we experience many changes of circumstances. We have times that we would refer to as good times and times we refer to as bad times and difficult times. And we, we experience those as we go through life. So we change and circumstances around us change, but God does not change. And God acts righteously in keeping all his promises to those who trust in him. So God is not, God is righteous. It comes out in this psalm. God's not a fair weather God. God is righteous. And through all the changes that we experience, um, he does not change. Number two, understanding Psalm 71 helps us understand that the wicked do not triumph at last. We are living in a time when the world around us is in a complete freefall into greater and greater wickedness. We are seeing the, the fruits of that all around us, things that just don't even make rational sense. People are espousing, embracing, promoting, uh, uh, agreeing with and agreeing to and exalting all among us. It's just a free fall all around us. But no matter what these present circumstances seem like, the power of hell did not triumph over Jesus Christ, and they will not triumph over those who trust in him. That doesn't mean that we know what's going to happen, say, in the next election um, cycle or, or what have you. But it does mean that ultimately the wicked do not win. Ultimately, Satan and his demons and all of the powers of darkness that are, that are just wreaking havoc upon this world, they do not win. Jesus Christ has won and we have victory through him.